by nature are sharks aggressive? No, they're not. They're not. <laughs> so this is mushrooms growing out of a wasp. I mean, we're just we're exposed to literally thousands of synthetic chemicals just in our everyday life. My family is normal. I just think, oh, every family is just three people. So if we put hair inside bricks, it will be like insulating your home. Hi, you're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SCR. I'm Jake Morgan. Today on the show, we're heading into summer. Can you handle it? You may be able to, but our hospitals can't. More on that later. But we're going to start the show with gassy corals. No, not farting corals, but gassy ones. What does this mean? Well, to understand that, we're going to jump straight into a chat with Caitlin Lawson from the Climate Change Cluster at the University of Technology, Sydney. I'm 10 years old. Oh, I want you to imagine that I'm 10 years old. Okay. I'm You're 10. 10. Okay. How would you begin to explain this to me? Okay. Corals, as we know, they're amazing, amazing organisms. And within them, we have the algae that live inside. They live in the tissues of the coral and they can photosynthesize and give lots of nutrients to the coral. And in return, the coral provides them with a nice home. There's all the bacteria that are everywhere around as well. And it's becoming more and more known, I guess, that these bacteria have a huge role to play. So for my work, I'm trying to look at the corals and then the algae and the bacteria that they live with and how they live together, I guess, and what gases they're capable of producing. So, so yeah, some of these gases we're seeing that they can produce are able to maintain how healthy the corals and algae are and how that relationship's going, how well they're able to cope when the temperatures get too hot Sometimes these gases, if there's more of them being produced, then that can help the algae and the bacteria help them cope with those temperatures. And so these particular gases, and what are they? BVOC is another lovely scientific acronym. stands for Biogenic Volatile Organic Compounds. So what that pretty much means is it's a name for these chemicals or gases that are getting produced by biological organisms, in my case by corals, that are really volatile so that when they're released into the atmosphere, like eventually some of these do end up in the atmosphere, then they can have an impact on the climate, for example. Some of these gases, when they get released into the atmosphere, they can increase like the amount of cloud cover that's around. So when these little particles get out, they're kind of like cloud seeding molecules so they can thereby increase the amount of solar radiation that's getting reflected back into the atmosphere in some local cases, can have a cooling effect on the sea surface temperature. So is that a bad thing? No, it's not, it's not a bad thing. In some cases, that can, be, that can be quite a good thing, really. If we're able to see that some of these gases, hypotheses have been put forward that during stress events, some of these gases will be, there'll be a lot more of them that are produced. And then with that increased production, then there's going to be more clouds. And with more clouds more solar radiation is getting sent away and then the sea surface can actually cool, which helps the organisms that originally produced the gases in the first place. Right. And so this is a natural process. So the corals naturally kind of emit these sorts of BBOCs. Yeah. yeah. I think there's a there's a nice example in terrestrial plants, so in land plants, with some one, I can't remember exactly the species of plant, but they produce... Isoprene as well, terrestrial plants produce this particular gas known as isoprene. And then when that's released, it kind of deters the caterpillars. So the caterpillars 
will kind of go away because they don't want to eat those plants because they don't like the mm. smell or the chemical that's being produced. They'll, I think that study likened it to as a kind of plant sweat that the caterpillars didn't like. Oh, right. They, so it's kind of like the corals are trying to save themselves from being eaten in a way? <laughs> I wouldn't. <laughs> I'm, like, it's, it's tricky because there's, there's so many of these gases. A lot of them have just kind of been thought, oh, they're just getting produced as part of a pathway that's meant for something else. And it's more recently, I guess, that we're starting to uncover that a lot of these do actually have ecological purposes as well. But it's really hard to say what they are. I think, yeah, it's a huge knowledge gap at the moment. So isoprene is one of these BVOCs. Yes. Why especially look at isoprene? What, what What is that? Well... The reason we were so interested in isoprene at the beginning, now it's kind of, it keeps expanding and we're like, oh, there's more things to look at. But it started with isoprene because in the terrestrial environment, it is amazingly well studied in land plants all around the place. And it's released into the atmosphere. Its emissions are like on par with methane. So together with methane, isoprene, they each make up about one third of these total volatile emissions. Oh wow. So that each of them I think is about 600 tons per year. And terrestrially what emits isoprene? Um lots lots of trees. I think there's been work looking at eucalyptus around. I think there's a fair fair bit of work that I've seen um they look at poplars, poplar trees. What are they? A type the, of tree? Yeah, I don't know if so I'm from I'm from Canberra originally and when you drive down the coast there's like we often see them on the edge of the roads. They're like kind of very tall, tall kind of skinny trees. <laughs> I don't know how to describe them. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of this work again has been done in the northern hemisphere and there's a lot more poplars around there. But there has been work saying eucalypts as well are quite large producers of isoprene. Yeah. And because methane, although not emitted to the same extent as perhaps carbon, methane can also be quite toxic, can't it be, once oh, it gets yeah. up into the atmosphere? Is that the same with isoprene? So isoprene is interesting because it can, as I was saying before, with the kind of the cloud forming capabilities, it can also, it can be a little bit nasty because while it might help increase cloud formation and therefore maybe result in some lowering surface temperatures on a local scale, it can also increase the residence time of a few other more nasty greenhouse gases. And what, is, what do you mean? Yeah, it can increase the amount of time that they exist in the atmosphere. So it's, as I said, it's really, these compounds are really volatile. So once it's released into the atmosphere, like within a matter of hours, it will be completely, it won't be isoprene anymore. It will have um, reacted with other gases and so on up there and resulted in other compounds. Terrestrially, yeah. I can't even say that word, on the land. Yes. Is isoprene emission a problem? I wouldn't say a problem at the moment, but they have shown with with isoprene in land plants that, yeah, it will increase the thermal tolerance of some some of these trees. It will help them survive some of these anomalous high temperatures that happen. But isoprene can also be, it's also used to make a lot of like rubber, like plastics and stuff. It's used in in that side as well. So then there's some, I think it's even been reported that we can expel it from our breath, but I think that's probably more likely to be a result as bacteria because some bacteria can produce it as well. So many things. (laughs) It sounds like we don't know a whole lot about it. No. It's very, it's, while it's much better studied in terrestrial systems, there's still, it's an ongoing field of research. There's still lots we continue to uncover. Like as I was saying before, eucalypts have been shown to produce it 
So with the Blue Mountains, do you know why the Blue Mountains are blue? And it's the reason for that blue haze that we see over the mountains is that results from isoprene because isoprene is produced and then it reacts with other thing and it's all those those little chemicals that are coming from the eucalypts that are making that that start with isoprene with isoprene not only kind of influencing you know what's happening in the clouds but maybe making other chemicals that are getting emitted up there last around for longer yeah for what reason are you trying to look at marine ecosystems and the link to isoprene what's what's your end goal well i guess the end goal is really to find out if there are some of these algae that, as a result of this compound, are more able to handle high temperatures. And as a result, just through continued stress events, they might become more abundant or more prevalent on the reef. And if we're finding that, oh, okay, things are changing and as we keep experiencing stress events and the kind of just the whole landscape of the reef changes, if we might see then a lot more of these high isoprene producers existing and if then we're seeing a lot more of them what's that going to mean for the climate and are there going to be enough bacteria that are wanting to use that isoprene to handle it or is it all going to end up in the atmosphere and then how is that is that going to result in more clouds as I was saying before or are there going to be more less ideal impacts from it? Had you heard of isoprene before getting into all this? Never. Really? I didn't know what isoprene was when I started. Do you ever feel like the clock is ticking? Oh, so much. <laughs> because if we're only, if you're only kind of just on the beginning of oh, figuring out how it's interacting with these environments and for an environment and ecosystem like the Great Barrier Reef, which is in a pretty tumultuous time, it might seem. Yeah. No, I think I definitely do feel that we're running out of time to look into all of these things. I think there's still so many unanswered questions and they're such incredible ecosystems there's so much going on and there's so much we don't understand it's kind of a bit just overwhelming how much we don't know looking into all these things and there's so much we can learn from them and it's like oh my god what's happening it just keeps getting hotter in these bleaching events we just keep seeing these bleaching events and it's quite terrifying to me at least Caitlin Lawson PhD candidate in the climate change cluster at the University of Technology Sydney What do you do when your job is taken by a robot? Where does all your e-waste go? How do you split your digital assets when you break up with your partner? This is Think Digital Futures. Each week, an exploration of the moral and mind-boggling questions that face us in the digital age. You can listen on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Digital Futures. Listening to Think Sustainability on 2SER, I'm Jake Morecambe. Now, Australia is no stranger to a hot summer, but global warming continues to push temperatures to uncomfortable and sometimes deadly levels. Heat waves now kill more Australians than any other natural disaster, with more people dying in the 2009 Victorian heat wave than the famous Black Saturday bushfires. But it's not just humans who are feeling the summer heat. Hospitals, the place you seek refuge when you are suffering from heat stroke or dehydration, are also finding it hard to escape the Australian summer sun. Miles Herbert with this story. 
many of our deadliest heat waves um, have been made worse by climate change. And because of those heat waves, Australians are dying. This is James Goldie, PhD candidate and climate change researcher at the University of New South Wales. I think about a decade ago, you might remember, you heard a lot of things like, we can't put any particular event onto climate change. Uh, we can talk about the trends, but not the particulars of certain events. Uh, that started to change uh, since then. Some of our most dangerous heat waves, like Black Saturday in 2009, uh, killed hundreds of Australians, and that was made worse by climate change. Heat waves are becoming a quintessential part of the Australian summer. Last year was the hottest recorded year on record, and temperatures continue to rise. Heat waves already caused the greatest number of deaths from natural disasters in Australia, more than cyclones, floods, and bushfires. Even though coping with the blistering summer heat might be a part of what it means to be Australian, James says even though our bodies have the ability to adapt, we are just not equipped to deal with this new kind of extreme heat. Most of our cells require a fairly sensitive temperature range, uh, and our body's really good at adapting to the conditions outside. So you know, everyone knows that you know, we sweat a heap on hot days, and that's our body's way of you know, keeping the thermostat steady. Uh, and when that starts to go out of whack, when it becomes too hot uh, or if it becomes too humid and we can't sweat anymore, when sweat starts dripping off, it's not cooling you down anymore. And when that happens, we start to see failures all over the place. And when you inevitably can no longer deal with the heat, you do everything you can to escape it. People often flock to shopping centers and movie theaters trying to avoid overheating. But when things get so bad and air conditioning doesn't do the trick, you tend to go to the hospital. During heat waves, hospitals see a huge influx in patients. Some are suffering from heat stroke, and others are just dehydrated. But just like us, hospitals are finding it hard to manage the rising temperatures and oncoming heat waves. As things get worse, the load on hospitals during summer is going to start increasing, and that's something we really need to think about. Hospitals are the sort of bastion of sort of last resort for people maintaining their health. It's the last port of call. So people actually enter hospital when they're in need of significant assessment and treatment to maintain, sustain or indeed restore life. This is Dr. Liz Hanna, president of the Climate and Health Alliance and professor at ANU. How do heat waves affect hospitals? In many ways, we've had incidences in Melbourne and in Adelaide where we've had massive heat waves and hundreds of people have been forced to flock to the local hospitals and it's very difficult for those to be able to accommodate. And so there's the logistics of how they're going to manage that. They need a lot of staff, they need space, they need beds, they need equipment and resources and unless they're fully prepared and they have an enormous level of flexibility to be able to respond to this surge in demand, then the level of care is, is suboptimal. Often during extreme heat waves, hospitals are not prepared. It's not just the high number of patients needing treatment that makes it harder for hospitals to cope with the summertime stress. When it gets too hot, our bodies shut down and stop operating at full capacity. And during heat waves, hospitals do the same thing 
uh, also subject to the ravages of heat, so they they also can suffer power insurgences, shortage of staff. So they're under stress themselves to be able to operate at precisely the same time as when they're expected to really ramp up their their capability. So if the power did go out because of a heat wave, what would happen? Um, it's, it's really dramatic. The, um, if the power went out, hospitals under normal circumstances, and I've actually been involved in a situation where this system failed, is that they are sort of quarantined so that if there's a power failure, the power system will make sure that it prioritises really vital infrastructure such as a hospital. But sometimes that does fail. The other thing is that they have backup, and of course the thing is that backup only lasts for a certain period of time. And so if a hospital, particularly a large hospital, were to suffer a power failure, then it would again internally prioritise the critical things, which would be the cold chains, theatres, and so you then run the risk of people working in heat and indeed uh, patients suffering exposure to heat in a uh, not very well ventilated building. And of course this would only happen when it was very hot, so opening the windows is not going to make it better. So were hospitals originally designed to deal with this kind of heat stress? Uh, well, no, they won't be on account of it's, it's a new threat. Yes, we've had, I mean, Australia's always had hot days. The problem is that this is becoming more frequent and longer and they're hotter. So it's a new risk. Liz says even if hospitals think they are prepared for the oncoming heat waves, no one knows just how hot the summer is going to get, and hospitals need to continue to adapt to how climate change is changing global temperatures. So what we're looking at here is the potential for heat waves to come, and we don't know when, but heat waves to come at some stage, and we know that they will do, that will exceed the preparedness of the hospitals. So as far as what they need to do to adapt, it, it will be, it's an ever-increasing thing, it's a dynamic thing, it has to change and just c- continually improve. And they'll only know when they fail, of course, when they fail. Liz thinks there still isn't enough attention paid to how heat can affect human health and the impact it has on the way hospitals can treat patients. This might be because not everyone is affected by the heat equally. Everything from where you live to your level of income can play a role in how the heat affects you. People in low-income areas tend to get hit by the heat more, so often the need for better care and treatment gets overlooked. I think the people up in Darwin call it the carpet walkers, which is that breed of people who, you know, they have somewhere to go to work and it's air-conditioned and they're com- comfortable and they, you know, live and dwell in offices, as it were. They have a major underestimation of what proportion of the population do not walk carpets, you know, that are outside for most or indeed a large part of their day and who are exposed. And they don't seem to consider the, you know, the district nurses, possibly because everyone they know, everyone they speak to, is in a similar boat and they're all a a privileged class. According to Liz, there's only one way to help hospitals and communities deal with global warming and heat waves. And even if we get better at managing the heat, and even if hospitals get better at treating patients during heat waves, according to James, it still won't be enough. The fact is that adapting to climate change is important, 
but it's like adapting to a kitchen fire. It doesn't fix the problem. James Goldie, PhD candidate and climate change researcher from the University of New South Wales, ending that story by Miles Herbert. That's all we have time for today on Think Sustainability. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to jump on iTunes and subscribe or wherever you get your podcasts, just search for Think Sustainability. This show is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SCR. I'm Jake Morecambe. I'll catch you next time.